If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 2. We'll be looking there, verses 19 through 23. This Christmas season, we have been going through Matthew's Gospel, especially verses uh, chapters 1 and 2, seeing how it relates to the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ. And if you remember, Matthew has laid out his narrative of the birth of Christ with five Old Testament quotations. And so we're going to look at the fifth one this morning in Matthew chapter 2. As we gather, we are reminded here that we live our life as believers with the Bible as our guide. The Bible guides us in everything we do. We look for it in guidance in all that we are after, all that we seek to accomplish. Whatever we do, we want to know what the Bible says about it. And so we refer to that as, you know, a biblical view of work. What does work look like in the scripture? A biblical understanding of death, a biblical view of marriage, a biblical message or understanding of generosity and what that looks like. We, we kind of use that idea of a biblical view of whatever it may be. We want to know what the Bible says about it. It is our God. But it will be strange for us to say or ask, what is the biblical view of missions? The reason why that would be strange is one theologian, Christopher Wright, says the whole Bible is itself a missional phenomenon. All of Scripture is about missions, if you will. Missions is not just one of a list of things that the Bible happens to talk about. Missions is about what the whole Bible is about. And here, as we get to Christmas, we see that God's Son, Jesus Christ, was in some sense that first missionary. God's son, Jesus Christ, left his home in heaven to come and save his people. He left where he was to come and save his people from their sin. This is what it means when we call it the incarnation, if you will, a large word we use, which simply means to become flesh. God became flesh. And here as we think about the coming of Christ, the birthday of our king, Christmas Day, what the incarnation really represents is the missionary heart of God. Not to leave his people in their sins, but to do what it takes to come after them, to go after them so he can save him. In some way, this passage this morning reflects that heart of God, the missionary call of God. It reflects how he would do whatever it takes to save his people. And so with that in mind, we read Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. The scripture says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time together. Already what we've sung, already what we can celebrate this morning, I'm sure, has been full for all of us. 
And what a great way to to cap off this morning as we gather in this place, but to look to your word. And we thank you, God, that Jesus Christ came for us. Father, it's with this in mind that we turn to your word now, asking you to use it and glorify your name through it. In Jesus our Lord we pray, amen. Our passage begins with something I mentioned last week. It just simply says, Herod died. When Herod passed away, the king who saw himself as the ruler to reign and no others to challenge him, ultimately he could not overcome death himself, and Herod passed away. Remember that Mary and Joseph had been warned in a dream to take the baby Jesus and run to Egypt because Herod's anger at the idea of another king being born would cause him to lash out. And so to protect the baby Jesus, the angel told them, go to Egypt. Herod surely lashed out, as we discussed last week, ordering the the death of all the baby infant boys around Bethlehem in the area. But God in his grace protected Jesus through the warning in that dream. And while they were in Egypt, they remained there until Herod died, as the text tells us. And when that happened, Herod passed away. The Lord comes with a messenger, which is simply what the word angel means. A messenger comes again to give direction to Mary and Joseph. It's time for you to go back to Israel because Herod is dead. The one who wanted Jesus dead has passed away. It's time for you to go back to Israel. And so Joseph and Mary, as he is shown throughout this entire time and all this text, Joseph is obedient to the call of God. And he gets up and he heads back to Israel. But as he comes back, he recognizes that living in Bethlehem or in the southern part of Israel, Judea, would not be a good option. You see, Herod had nine sons. He killed three of them because they were challenging him. But this next son came in, and and his name was Archelaus. After Herod died, the Rome was in charge of Israel. They realized that there was not one of his sons who was as great as Herod. So they divided the, the nation up into three parts. And Archelaus got the southern part, which included Judea, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and all that area. Archelaus turned out to be more ruthless than his father even, more wicked than even Herod, if you can possibly imagine. And so his uh, reputation preceded him. And so in this sense, Joseph comes back and he recognizes that it wouldn't be good for us to live in the southern part where Archelaus is king. Let's go to the northern part of Israel, into Galilee. And so the text tells us that he went into Galilee being warned again in a dream, withdrew to the district of Galilee. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth. Galilee was in the north, around the Sea of Galilee. The whole region was referred to that. And the city of Nazareth was placed there. Now what's interesting about this move is that Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 2 that this was to fulfill another prophetic promise. That Joseph and Mary moved to the north, to the area of Galilee, to live in a city called Nazareth, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. What's interesting, why I say that's interesting, is because no quote is given. If we see in our text from chapter 1, this is what fulfilled the prophet. Verse 23, a quote from Isaiah. Or in chapter 2, this is fulfilled the prophet. Uh, Verse 6 of chapter 2, a quote from Micah. Verse 11, uh, excuse me, verse 16, uh, 15 of chapter 2, a quote from Hosea 11. 
or even verse 18 of chapter 2, a quote from Jeremiah. These others were direct quotes from the prophet, but when you get to this one, there's no direct quote here. In other words, this was spoken, Phil, what was spoken by the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This phrase, he will be called a Nazarene, does not appear any place in the prophets. It doesn't appear any place in the Old Testament itself. It's not there. In fact, the city of Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. Never mentioned in any place. And so how is this the case? What does this mean? This fulfillment statement without a quote typically signifies that this thought pervades the Scripture. Not just some idea of this direct quote, but this, this theme pervades the Old Testament and the promise of the Messiah. No quote there, but the thought or the theme runs throughout the Old Testament. And what is this theme? Nazareth was a larger, a little bit larger than a village. Matthew calls it a city, probably some medium-sized place. But it was of no great consequence. As I said, not mentioned in the Old Testament, when you look at Nazareth, there was nothing important that happened there. You have Bethel, you have Shechem, you have Bethlehem, you have all these cities and all these towns that have great significance or importance in the Old Testament where events took place. Jacob digging a well, Abraham meeting God, some sense of, of the patriarchs were there and it has this history of God's faithfulness. You have cities like that throughout Israel, but not Nazareth. Nothing happened there. It's of no consequence whatsoever when you look at the Old Testament. In some ways, of course, it's a city of contempt. In fact, what we know about Nazareth, and the only other place it's mentioned other than Jesus of Nazareth, comes from the calling of the disciples themselves. In John chapter 1, Jesus is calling Philip, and he walks by him, and he says, Philip, follow me. And Philip comes to follow him, but before he does, he goes back to find his, his, his friend Nathaniel, if you will. And he goes to find Nathaniel. He says, Nathaniel, we have found him. In excitement, Philip and Nathaniel from the same place as Peter and Andrew were. He comes back and he says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and all the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, we have found him. And Nathaniel's response was simple. In disbelief, he simply said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In that moment, you see the contempt. What, what are you talking about? There's nothing special about it. In fact, nobody even wants to live in Nazareth. It's a tired old town that nobody goes to. It's, it's considered less than the other towns. And these guys were from Bethsaida. Bethsaida was a nice place. We don't slum with the people of Nazareth. We don't go down there. Can anything good come from that place? is taught throughout the Old Testament that the Messiah would come. And he would come not to loud cheers. He would come not to celebrations. There would not be any rejoicing in the streets. There would not be any partying about his birth. There would not be any glory seen around this coming of the one other than the angels proclaiming it from the skies. In fact, Psalm chapter 22 tells us in talking directly about the Messiah, he says, as the Messiah responds, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they mouth, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. In other words, the Messiah says, I'm not respected, I'm despised, I'm rejected. Or as Isaiah puts it in his prophecy, 
Isaiah's prophecy is split into two parts, by the way. The first part speaks of the coming Messiah who will be king, and he will reign over God's people, and he will bring restoration to them, and the government shall be upon their shoulders. But then it switches. And in the second part, he says, this king who will come will be a servant. He will be a servant king. And in the famous passage about the Messiah's death, Isaiah 53 Isaiah 53, verse 3 tells us he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The Messiah would come, he would be despised and rejected. In other words, the theme throughout is that the Messiah, the king would come and he wouldn't be celebrated, he wouldn't be welcomed, he would be despised and rejected. And in this sense, I believe what's happening here is Matthew is saying the theme of the rejected Messiah, the theme of the one who would humble himself even to the point of death, that theme is found in the fact that he was even raised in Nazareth. He was called a Nazarene. Here, in this, our Savior didn't come to us as a warrior king to fight and to bring his kingdom by that means or method, but he came to us as a humble servant, a humility that goes all the way back to his birth, laid in a manger, no room for him in the inn. And his humility was on display in his whole life, despised and rejected all the way to the cross. And what we see in this is that God sent his son from heaven to save us on mission with a task. And even in that, he humbled himself willingly to come to save his people. To save his people. Simply, I think this teaches us just a few quick things. The idea, as I've already said, that our Messiah humbled himself to come for us. As one Christmas carol says, he came from the highest bliss down to a world like this. He came from that highest of places to come to this place. He left heaven, he left his throne there, he left his reigning there to come down to this earth. And what for? He humbled himself so that he could save us. In fact, the passage that I think speaks absolutely clearly on this, the passage that speaks clearly on this is the, the book of Philippians chapter two. And what Paul is writing in Philippians 2, he says this plainly. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Here it teaches us that Jesus left the glories of heaven to come to the coldness and darkness of this earth. He humbled himself to come here. And what Matthew is showing us is the humility of our Savior when he says he shall be called a Nazarene. As one pastor has say, stated, Jesus did not approach the incarnation by asking what's in it for me. He didn't approach the incarnation by saying what do I get out of it? Many ways, and I'm not pointing any fingers here, oftentimes we think about Christmas that way, don't we? What's in it for me? Where are my gifts? What do I get out of it? But Jesus didn't come to earth with that mindset or understanding. He came with more of an attitude of the fact that it doesn't matter. You're going to be laid in a manger. It doesn't matter. 
You're going to be on the run, having to flee from your life from birth to run to Egypt. It doesn't matter. There's going to be nowhere for you to lay your head. It doesn't matter. You're going to have to be raised in Nazareth. It does not matter. You're going to be an outcast and rejected. It doesn't matter. You're going to go to a cross and die. That doesn't matter. Instead of saying what's in it for me, Jesus humbled himself to say, I'll do whatever it takes to save my people from their sins. And in the cross, we see that, but we see that also in Christmas. He humbled himself. He humbled himself to the point of death, the scriptures tell us. Continuing in Philippians chapter 2, Having said that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The greatest humiliation, the greatest humbling, the greatest display of that in all time is the Son of God, the maker of heaven and earth, came to earth not only to come to save us, but he would save us in a particular way, and that particular way would be to go to a cross to die for us. But the cross was even signified in his birth. John Donne, preaching a Christmas sermon in 1626, says this, the whole of Christ's life was a continual humiliation. Others die martyrs, but Christ was born a martyr. He found a Golgotha when he was crucified, even in Bethlehem where he was born. For to his tenderness then, the straws were almost as sharp as the thorns after. In the manger, as uneasy at first as the cross at last. His birth and his death were but one continual act. And his Christmas day and his Good Friday are but one evening and morning of the very same day. Christmas only points forward to Good Friday. The point here that John Dunn's making is that Jesus was born to die. He had a mission in mind. He came to the earth with the task, with that call, with that mission. And he says, I'll do whatever it takes to get to the cross. If anybody tried to stop him, he simply said, get behind me, Satan. If anyone tried to hold him back from going to fulfill his mission, he said, I do not live by man's words or the bread of this world. I live by God's word alone. If anybody tried to hinder him from going, Jesus says, nothing can stop me. I willingly lay down my life. Remember, no one can take his life. No one can take it from him. No one can force him to go to the cross. No one can force him to do these things. Christ Jesus came and he willingly gave of himself because he was born with a task and that task was to save his people and that task required his death. He was born to die. He accepted the humiliation to save us. Whatever it took, he came to do it. Which finally teaches us that he humbled himself, he humbled himself to death, he humbled himself for us. Listen to this verse, 2 Corinthians. I'm struck 
by the, this verse every time I run across it. It's one of those verses that sometimes you, f- you forget about, you know, you, you don't think about. It's not like John 3, 16 that you learned when you were, when you were a kid and, and, and sticks with you and you continue. It's not like some of the other passages that kind of stick in your head. But this is a verse, and the intensity and greatness of this verse blows me away every time I read it. Listen to what Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Do you see the point Paul is making? Though he had everything in heaven, there was nothing he longed for, nothing he needed, nothing else he had to do. He had it all there. He became poor by humbling himself, coming to this earth, here to the coldness of it, laid in a manger, no room for him, despised and rejected. He gave up all of heaven to come here and accept all of the poverty of this place. He became poor so that you may become rich. So that you may become rich. Christ came, humbled himself, born in a manger, lived in Nazareth, despised and rejected, died on the cross, rose again on the third day so that you, my friend, may have life. So that you can become rich, he says. John 3.16 is only true because Jesus came as a baby. Ephesians chapter 2 that you were dead in your trespasses and sins and God made you alive so that he could dispose upon you his immeasurable riches, it says. That's only true because Jesus did not stay in heaven. He left it all. He gave it all up to come and die for us and says, whatever it takes, it doesn't matter. I'll do it. I love my people. I'm going after my people. I won't leave my people. I've got a mission and I've got a task and I'm going to save them. Whatever it takes, that's what he came to do. And my friends, that is truly being rich. When we recognize that the greatest gift we could ever possibly receive is Jesus Christ himself. That's the immeasurable riches of heaven. The immeasurable riches of heaven that he's come to give us is not some group of things. It's not measured by gold. It's not measured by silver. It's not measured by any of those things. The immeasurable gifts of riches of heaven is in the person of Jesus Christ. He came for us. He is our treasure. He is our gift. He is our redemption. Jesus came to save us. He came to save us. We were asked this week, kids were talking about Christmas stories growing up. My grandmother passed away last year, almost 101. And right up to the end, I always loved it. I asked her what was her favorite Christmas, and she would say, 1927. My parents ordered a doll from New York City. And I thought, that's pretty cool. My kids were asking me what was mine. I remember I was nine I thought I didn't get anything. My dad liked to play tricks on us like we didn't get anything. Like, oh, that's it. That's, I'm sorry. And then when you get sad, you know, he goes, oh, there may be something out in the yard or something like that. 
When I was nine years old, that was what happened. He said, oh, I, I left something out back of, back of the house. Go check. And I went back there, and there it was. All of my dreams came true. My favorite gift in all of my Christmases growing up, I got a go-kart. And in the 1980s, a go-kart was the greatest thing you could possibly get as a kid, right? I got on that thing, and I rode it everywhere, all over the yard. It's my greatest gift, my greatest Christmas memory. In six months, it was wrecked. The engine had fallen apart. I couldn't get it cranked no matter what I did. Dad got tired of it, and it sat out back in the yard and collected rust for about five or six years before we finally threw it away. My greatest Christmas gift we gave away after six months, really. No longer useful. And in many ways, we open a lot of presents and a lot of gifts. In many ways, we spend Christmases doing it, and I think that is right. It is right as long as we remember the greatest gift we've ever received is not in anything we open up on a Christmas morning. The greatest gift we ever received is in the gift of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who came for us and did whatever it took to save us from our sins. That's the greatest gift. You don't have to polish that. You don't have to clean that up. You don't have to fill it up with gas. You don't have to do anything to maintain that gift. That gift is kept for us undefiled, unfading. Nothing can touch it. We store it up, and the treasures of this world cannot measure up to the gift of Christ Jesus. And we have that gift because he became poor and came for us. He gave it all up to come for us, to save us from our sins so that we may be rich. Our prayer is today that you are rich in Christ, that you know him as your savior. Recognize what he has done. Don't scorn him or reject him as they did in that day because when you scorn and reject this savior, this Christ, there is no other option. There is no other place to turn. There's not another savior waiting around the corner. There's not another one that can forgive you of your sins. This is the one who fulfilled the prophets. This is the one who did whatever it took to save you. This is the one that loved you enough to leave heaven to come here for you. This is the one who took all of the scorn and all of the rejection all the way to the cross this is the one who rose again and said in spite of it all I have come to save you don't reject him this one became poor so you may be rich be rich in him today by accepting him as the savior not only of the world but of your life of your life let's pray together father thank you for Christ God what a treasure what a gift he is that he did not leave us in our sins but he came to save us from them so God today I thank you for the opportunity to be here to look to your word for the message that your word tells us over and over again that you did not leave us you did not forsake us you came for us you did not leave us in our sins you came here to earth to die for us you loved us enough to leave heaven to come God thank you for that truth May we not make the same mistake they made in that day. May we not reject this, come, this coming Savior, but may we accept him. And in accepting him, we find the great riches of glory. God, the greatest gift we could receive is Jesus Christ. And I pray that every person in this room does not reject that gift.
but accepts it today. In Jesus' name, I ask this. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Even today, no greater time, no greater place for you to accept that gift of Christ than today. As we stand and sing, I'll stand here. I'll be waiting. If anyone wants to accept this great gift, open up, if you will, the greatest gift you can ever receive today in Christ Jesus. We would love to speak to you and talk with you. Let's stand together and sing.